This is a podcast I recorded with Jeffrey Andrews, the first non-Chinese social worker in Hong Kong. Our conversation is about an area I'd like to see more focus on in the coverage of Hong Kong's protests, the Muslim, South Asian, and refugee and immigrant or migrant worker community of Hong Kong. It's a huge portion of the population, roughly 8%, but it does not get nearly as much coverage in the protests, and there's a tendency to marginalize these voices, both historically in Hong Kong, which has a very problematic education system for non-Chinese speakers or those not wealthy enough to afford international schooling, as well as a disconnect between the Muslim community and the non-Muslim community. There have been potential openings for solidarity in the Hong Kong protests, most notably the actions of Hong Kong protesters who helped clean up Kowloon Mosque after it was damaged by police on October 20th, as well as numerous attempts by people like Jeffrey and others within the South Asian uh, migrant worker and Muslim community to reach out and build solidarity with the Chinese majority of Hong Kong. This is a very unique podcast because we've actually built a tour specifically with Jeffrey's organization to take travelers into Chungking Mansion to better understand some of these issues, some of the communities in Hong Kong that typically are overlooked and misunderstood. So if you like our conversation, go to asiaarttours.com after this and check out our tour there with Jeffrey's organization into Chungking Mansion. All right, here's our chat with Jeffrey Andrews on the Muslim community of Hong Kong, the South Asian community of Hong Kong, and the situation involving migrant workers in Hong Kong and how it relates to the protests. I hope you enjoy. My name is Jeff Andrews. I am of Indian descent, but I'm born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, I am now a uh, registered social worker in Hong Kong, actually the first ethnic minority social worker in Hong Kong, and I serve refugees and, of course, ethnic minorities uh, in Hong Kong. So something that's been really interesting um, for your background is that you, before, at least in media I've read about you, you were described as being involved in gangs or maybe street crime. Um, you also grew up at a time when s- segregation was basically legal still in Hong Kong, where if you were not uh, of Chinese ethnicity, you were sent to ethnic schools where you weren't really taught Chinese and it locked people into these categories of what opportunities they would have later in life. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about um where you're at now in life, and when you give these talks, how these obstacles that you had to overcome give you a lot of insight into what other people that you're helping now are going through. Yeah, so of course, um, you know, uh, Hong Kong was a British colony before, and I don't know what, uh, you know, uh, how the British thought of ethnic minorities, but they just thought it would be easier to segregate them, put them into, you know, ethnic minority schools so that they will just feel at ease with each other. 
And then they think, oh, the Cantonese is going to be so difficult, so we'll just put it in a different language for their second language, apart from the English. But then what happened is he created people like me, lost generation, people that could not integrate into mainstream society, could not find jobs which cater to both the local population, local Chinese, and the ethnic minority. So instead, we were just all going into construction and security. and Sadly, a lot of us vicious cycle of crime, unemployment, and, you know, welfare dependency. We had to fight every route along the way, every every obstacle. Uh, the issue is that it's not, uh, I mean, it's not totally stopped right now in terms of segregation, but we've made sure many schools are now, you know, recruiting ethnic minorities and then giving them the actual, you know, Cantonese base. Some of them now have a different form of Cantonese, which is like a um, an easier version, which is not the best as well. Again, it just tells you that Oh, he can speak Cantonese, but he can't read and write. Um, so, you know, the government has made measures, but it's all because of civil society. It's all because of people like me and a few friends that just kept fighting and fighting, fighting the system. Today, I serve refugees because I thought, oh, my gosh, as a minority myself, it was already so tough for me. And then there comes these guys who are, you know, fleeing political, religious, racial violence. And then coming to Hong Kong with no status, and they struggle a lot too. Um, so in a way, I'm a bridge for both worlds right now. Um, like I said, education has improved, but it's not still uh, equal footing. Uh, many of our minorities are now going to university that they never could have. Now the police force has recruited ethnic minorities where during my time, because we could not read and write, they completely made a policy that hindered us from, from even entering the police force. So things are changing. But again, people like us, we just need to keep voicing out, keep, you know, pushing the government. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit, Jeffrey, about um, when it comes to uh, the cultural stereotypes that South Asians and other non-ethnic Chinese have had to overcome what was it like for you growing up and what improvements have you seen and, and where do improvements still need to, to go? Like I said, ten, uh, 20 years ago, you know, I was, uh, you know, a rarity that goes out to play football and local pitches because, you know, we do face discrimination. Not many people knew ethnic minorities. We were just like this isolated group that just like, oh, they are here, but they're not here. Um, you know, so some forms of racist terms were just like norms. Um, then we have to fight it. We have to beat it. We have to like educate. We have to get the government on it. Um, it's improved now because ethnic minorities are an official term by the government. We're actually in many of the policies now that the government works on every year. We're more visible in society in terms of media representation and um, you know, uh, or in pop culture. But again, not enough in government, civil service, and all that. Um, but like I said, it's, 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 it's the education system, which is lacking. We don't have cultural sensitivity courses or, or anything to show minority contribution in Hong Kong in the history books or anything, textbooks. So we're always feeling like, oh, we're not really part of the society. We're not, you know, our contributions are never mentioned. Uh, so many of the local friends just think we just came here maybe five, 10 years ago. We just immigrated here, but no, many of us have a, hundred-year history and, 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 and link to Hong Kong, but nothing is mentioned. And that's something that I'm now moving forward with is 
um, how is the government going to show our contributions, put them into the education system, maybe even have a, a commission on, on ethnic affairs or uh, a, a museum that that ethnic minorities can feel proud of and say, look, that's that's us, that's where you know where our roots are and, and what we've done for Hong Kong. So uh, still a lot of political will that's lacking. Um, you know, we had to fight every obstacle, like I said, along the way, um, uh, like people like me and some friends. But if not, I think, you know, people will still be calling ethnic minorities today. I mean, I'm just grateful for Sunday because that was a crisis we turned just a matter of moments. And, and today it's just been like, you know, it's been, it's been fully viral. People are saying these are Hong Kongers too. This is the real Hong Kong. So, you know, it wasn't government effort. It wasn't any so-called elite of our community or so-called other leaders. It's people like us who are grassroots, uh, you know, uh, who just tried their very best every day just to, you know, show for um, what we've what we've what we've done, uh, and it's not easy because even within our own community, we have a, a very divisive, very, um, um, uh, you know, uh, it's 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 every man for himself, which is really really sad. Which is what I'm trying to break through with my group of youth and 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 and, and group of minority friends that are so tired of this status quo. What do you mean by every man for themselves? Well, you know, like, uh, very honestly, we have a community which is, okay, within the Nepalese, we're only going to look for our Nepalese. If it's an Indian, amongst the Indians, you have different, you know, groups as well. And then they form their own little groups. And then you've got the Pakistanis and you've got one side is the Muslims. So, you know, that's something that me, my friends, we're, we're trying to like, look, we're, I know we don't like the term ethnic minority. That was it's quite you know, labeling, it's called labeling effect, but at least we're one group, we have more bargaining power. And that's something that I'm trying to like get the younger generation to go, look, let's unite, let's be a force, let's, you know, think strategically, um, you know, but then of course you have resistance from the old school, the elites, those who've been rubbing shoulders with the government powers. They, you know, you saw how the mosque, sadly, I don't want to, go into politics too much, but the way they handled that crisis was, um, they, look, the chief executive came to apologize to us, that's enough. So as long as they apologize to us, we've taken the apology. Well, uh, well then, hey, the youngsters are like, really? We want to see this apology. We want to know how genuine these are. So you have this now, you know, um, huge disparity between the, 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 the younger generation and the old school elite and, and i think sooner or later this power from this our our younger ones are going to take over back because the younger local chinese are also standing up with us they're also seeing as much as what's going on in hong kong they're like Ooh, wow now we're seeing what's happening in your community now we see your struggle so i think there's just fantastic momentum but it's really about how we strategize so th this might be the only politics, and you can just touch upon what you want to touch upon. I'm not trying to make you talk about anything that you can't. But could you explain what happened, um, and this will be sort of a yin and yang, good and bad. What happened at Chungking Mansion that was organized uh, by you and several other community organizers? Um, and what happened at Kowloon Mosque, and how are those examples of maybe 
the positives that are happening in Hong Kong because of the politics and protests of the moment, as well as the negatives. I think I, I don't mind talking about that because I think that was a fantastic example of, of, of how people should respond, how communities should respond. So basically, a uh, human rights activist was attacked and sadly, um, apparently, people said the, the assailants were um, South Asians. Now, this is normal for me and many of our community that we're always the easy blame figures. And sadly, we're always having to react. We're always having to respond. We're sorry to say if it was a white person in Hong Kong that committed a crime, the, the whole community doesn't have to come in and go, oh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we, we condemn such acts and blah, blah. But that's what's always happening within us, within our communities. We're always having to, like, respond. Now, anyway, um, what's happened during that time was, I think, the local protesting public or whoever, or maybe some radical groups started posting out photos of saying few things that they're going to do is one is attack the mosque, attack Chunke mentions and attack South Asians. Uh, so we were like, oh, wow, this time it's not just blaming us and labeling us. It's like saying now we're actually going to take re like take revenge and it's going to be physical harm and, and to your religious institutions and to your most iconic place, which is Chunke mentions. So this was like, wow, this is this is closed now. We really got to think what we're going to do. A few friends of mine, me, called each other and we're like, what can we do? And we thought, why don't first we visit Jimmy, you know, express our solidarity. And believe it or not, within hours, I don't know what happened. News got out. We got the Muslim community. I've never seen that in my lifetime here as they responded in letter saying they condemn such acts uh, and they stand in solidarity with the Hong Kong people. So you're like thinking, ooh, now this is unique. Anyway, we went to visit Jimmy, and it was a bit of a, I would say, hijacked by other groups of ethnic minorities, which is absolutely fine, uh, as long as we all had the intention of, of, of letting him know we, we condemn such acts, and also we're Hong Kongers as well. Jimmy took that very well. Of course, that went viral to the public, um, but the threat still exists, and we didn't know what was going to happen uh, on, on that Saturday. We went to visit him on, on Thursday. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then here's the story. Here is the thing is now Jimmy and the human rights, can, um, you know, those who are organizing the marches actually said, why don't you, Jeff, and ethnic minorities lead the march? Uh, this has never happened before in Hong Kong. Very unique opportunity. Um, but I always said as a social worker, as someone who's had trouble with the law, I don't want to go through that. and I don't want to put any of my youths or people that support our, our cause to go into such a, a, a route. So I said, if it's rejected by the police, we're not going. And it was uh, ultimately rejected. And then people were like, just come, just come. Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll face the consequences with you. And I'm like, no, sorry, as ethnic minorities, we, we have it harder. And if we get into trouble, it's just very difficult for us to get out. So, but in my heart, in my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, this was an opportunity missed. But then I thought, hmm, and then a friend called in and says, hey, you know, we should kind of just be around Chongqing and let's just give out water and, and, and food. And I'm like, actually, you know what? That's not too bad. And I could actually bring in a guitar. We could sing some Chinese songs and we could just protect Hong Kong. And then I thought, why don't we be peace ambassadors so that we're not breaking the law? We're protecting our home. But then we're offering water and, and a place of shelter if anyone's in need. 
Uh, and I made sure it wasn't too political, even though as much as I support the democratic movement, I've got to be very careful. And I said, look, if it was a police, a tourist, a local Chinese protester comes in for water, we give it to everybody. If anyone comes in the chunky needing help, we'll, we'll let everybody in. And, that, and, and I released this on Facebook, not knowing what the reaction is going to be. Within hours, it just went viral, which is fantastic. But again, it's the actual day that I was worried about because, yes, as much as people say it's great, we don't know who's going to come in and, and cause problems. So it was really scary as soon as I walked into Chongqing with my friends and I'm like, oh gosh, today is, is make or break. I just never forget, I saw a whole line of phone boxes with ice and in there and I'm thinking, we didn't order any ice. All I ordered was 30 boxes of water, not knowing how it's going to be, how many people are going to take it. And believe it or not, it was the Chongqing management, local Chinese management that heard about us and they're saying, we support you and we're going to be providing you ice throughout the day. And they had a whole sound system with some security and a guy operating it for me that gave us mics. Uh, and they said, look, 12.15, we're going to close the, the, door, the gates. You'll stand outside. And I'm thinking, wow. Um, come 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, the gates are still open. People pouring in left, right, center. Boxes of water donated by random people. Cash coming through. We went and bought bottles of water. You know, people came in and hugged us. It was crazy seeing old people walk up those stairs and coming and hugging and sweaty. You know, Indian, Pakistani, African friends who maybe, you know, that very morning took an MTR probably would not sit next to us. So it was a very, uh, for me, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, I think it was a historical moment for Chongqing to do that because it's never been done before. So, you know, it's fantastic response. People have been really calling in left, right, center saying, you know, that was a, 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 an op a, a crisis that you managed so well and created an opportunity out of it. And that's a fantastic example to the government, apparently, that we should actually be on their PR team because, you know, I think Chongqing has always been negative. You, you name it. But I believe now we just maybe might have just changed that. Can you explain that a bit? Like, Chongqing, there's a movie about it. It's in every guidebook. Um, if you're a local... You're going there to get curry, oftentimes, or good Indian food, good South Asian food. So I, I don't, could you explain for Hong Kongers how have there been stereotypes or negative uh, reputations about Chongqing that as a tourist, you, you might not even notice? What And for the people living there, where do they fit in? Do they like Chongqing? Do they see it as a relic that they would like reformed with modern housing? So could you talk about these three audiences sort of? the stereotypes of Chongqing, how it's perceived by tourists, and then how it's actually experienced by the people living there? That's a fantastic question. Um, for the local Chinese population, it's a no-go area. It's like going into Iraq. It's like going into, you know, a war zone, a uh, crime-infested zone, thanks to the movie and, of course, other media news about murder and vice and, and all sorts of crime. But I will say the last five years, it's been changing because, you know, we do lots of tours. You know, it's been on the media quite a lot. But what's happening in terms of, uh, you know, people just coming in and, 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 and having curry, that's happening with students more. But many locals still have never been into chunky mentions, believe it or not. So that's, that's how bad things are in the, in the local terms. 
changing now, of course, like I said, um, thanks to Sunday. Mm. But, you know, you still have maybe seven out of ten people who in Hong Kong have never been into Chongqing. You know, uh, so that's the problem there. In terms of tourism, I can tell you it's a, it's a, it's a very iconic place. You know, uh, Gordon Matthews wrote a book about it. People love to come in and, 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 and see it for themselves. Um, people love to come and get their monies exchanged. People like to come and eat their food there, get one of the cheapest mobiles. So in terms of tourism, I think people love to come in and just experience a different side of Chimke, a different side of Hong Kong. Because Chim Sa Cho, you've got the peninsula, you've got the Star Ferry, you've got you know, the shopping areas. But then in the middle of this, is, is a smack in the middle is, is Chungking, this uniquely vibrant place where the majority are not Chinese. So in, in, in terms of that, yeah. People living inside, I think they love it. They just, this is home. This is a sense of security. It's their home. It's, 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 it's something that they take pride in. Yes, it's not the most fancy place. It's improving uh, as it goes, but it's a community. You feel human here. I always say you feel the sense of humanity. People always making sure, hey, how, how are you going? Good morning. You know, want some tea? Have you had dinner? You know, you're greeting people. You feel this sense of like, we're all you know, brothers and sisters in this United Nations. And that's that's what we feel locally. Yes, of course, reputation-wise, it, it's affecting us sometimes. You're like, oh, you know, um, people always just think, oh, you guys are poor, you live here because, you know, um, you like to only live amongst your community. That's not true. We're very, I think, open to people coming in. Like I said, we do tours. People are coming in to eat the curry. We love explaining everything. And, you know, it's Diwali on Sunday. You can see lights everywhere. One of the most beautiful things for me is Ramadan is when Muslims pray, it's like this fantastic unity. And then when they break fast, it's like a feast. It's like tables everywhere in shops and restaurants. And, 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 and if you're passing by, they'll offer you, you know, come eat with us, you know, break fast with us. You know, it's, 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 I don't think anywhere else in Hong Kong you can feel this human. You know, try saying good morning <laughs> to your neighbor in, in, in your normal neighborhood. Absolutely, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a forgotten thing, but here, you know, you come in in the morning, you're like seeing friendly faces, even if you don't know them, they'll, they'll say good morning. So I think that is now, that message is now slowly spreading into the local public. Uh, like I said, yesterday, I saw people coming in, I'm like, whoa, you know, they look like, you know, when they're new, you, you know, because they look like lost sheep, but, you know, you can sense what we've done on Sunday is going to break that, and tomorrow, I mean, Friday is Thanksgiving Day. For, for, for them um, towards us. So that's going to be very interesting. And as a social worker and a community organizer, how have you gone about um, trying to dismantle these stereotypes? As you said, you know, I scoffed being an American because <laughs> we have a lot of places that uh, with much higher crime rates, much higher, disproportionately, more violence or, or suffering or reasons to be afraid than a place like Chungking. So I'm wondering for you, um, I know it seems like tourism is a tactic that we're trying to use with you. Um, you've done tours with students. Uh, I guess the two-part question for this, and then we'll move on to the mosque. What tactics do you use as an educator to help lower the level of fear, and that can be with a, an elderly, silver-haired gentleman or, you know, a young student who's ready for anything. What sort of techniques do you use to 
make that fear go away and just connect people to people? And then why within school systems are they starting these sorts of programs? Why have, have you been given the space to do what you do with introducing people to the South Asian community or spaces like Chungking? I think I'm very lucky that being the first social worker, ethnic minority, I got so many interviews done in Chungking. So that adds an element. So firstly, they go, ooh, interesting guy. And then what? He works in Chungking. Oh, he works for refugees. Oh, you know, so he speaks Cantonese. So, you know, it's just been one after the other. And then I just very lucky the momentum grew. So, you know, when people see Chungking, they go, oh, there's this guy called Jeff. He's a social worker. There are refugees. Oh, there are restaurants. And then so I just tapped into that momentum. And then I thought, why don't we do tours? Let's break the, the stereotypes. So we do it. We do the positive stuff. And we also show them the negative. We go take them to the alleyway. See? You know, this is stuff that needs to be improved on. So, you know, we're not trying to ice the, the, the cake because it's you don't have to. It's it's more beautiful telling a natural story of, of diversity, uh, yet there's struggles, but we're overcoming them step by step. Um, and then the local media has really been, 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 been tapping into that a lot. Um, you know, we're getting a lot more interviews in the next few days. So that's that's. It's happening. Schools now are changing their education system because they realize just going by the books, just having kids just becoming robots is not enough. Um, if you go to any other place in, in Hong Kong, it's always about the safety, for structure and chunking. There's this excitedness every day. And I think that's why schools and corporates and organizations and churches want to make chunking as a as a must. If you're talking about ethnic minorities, chunking is a must because there's no other place that represents ethnic minorities more than Chunky Mansions in Hong Kong. So, and then we host tours as social workers and NGOs, so uh, quite relatively, like I said, cheap. Um, but you get a lot of it. You get to meet the people. There's no, like, you know, program speeches or PowerPoint. It's going down there, meeting them, talking, visually seeing, touching, feeling. You know, no no better place in Hong Kong to, to do that um, than, than Chunking. So I think... Like I said, maybe in the next, I hope we can continue this partnership because I think people will get so much out of it. Every time I do these walks, you know, you start, <laughs> the first minute you can see these guys are like, some of them are like, oh gosh. Once you're done with them, you can just see they're, they're a changed human being. It impacts them. I, I don't believe no one is leaving this place without some form of impression change or some mindset shift. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be a positive one. So we, we're, I'm going to ask this in a way where um, I don't want to frame it politically, even though it, it's going to involve the protests. So again, just answer it however you're comfortable. Um, but this weekend, we had sort of the agony and the ecstasy, heaven and hell, where we have this great moment of solidarity at Chungking, but we have this blemish on the Hong Kong government and Hong Kong police force where they... Um, damaged uh, the Kowloon Mosque. Now, uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about it from the perspective of a community organizer. You said that the government came and spoke to you. You don't need to get into the politics, but what did you say to them? And then to, to put a little bit of the positive on this very shameful event, what did it say to you when you saw Hong Kongers, ethnic Chinese, Muslims, South Asians coming together to, to clean the mosque after this 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 problematic uh, event. 
I, we didn't speak to the government, actually, um, to be honest. I, I think uh, I'll tell you how ironic it is, because the whole threat each for the last few days was how protesters were going to do it. Unfortunately, you know, with limited manpower, we initially wanted to also man the, the mosque, but I think they told us it wasn't necessary, so we just stayed in Chongqing. You know, throughout my people marching, those hours I was on the mic, I was just like, are you guys going to attack the mosque? People unifyingly saying no. Are you guys scared of Muslims? Are you guys scared of the mosque? They're like, no. Are you guys going to attack Chunki mansions? No. Are you going to attack South Asians? No. So, you know, this was just kept, I kept reiterating that, reiterating that. Um, and, you know, the whole people were just accusing the protesters of they were going to do it eventually. Um, so it was ironic that at the end of it, it was actually the police force. So, you know, I think that day the, the protesters actually gained a point or whatever. They, 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 they gained favor um, within the community. Well, for me, I think it, it, was, it was quite a shame because all this, you know, negativity of, 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 you know, it could have been a race riot. It could have turned into a religious riot. It could have been chaos if it went into a race war, if it had all happened as what whoever tried to cause panic did. But I think how we quickly reacted as a community between locals and us, I think that was that was that was changing. So I think honestly, um, the government could learn a lot. The government could learn a lot about its people and trust its people. Um, uh, you know, just seeing them clean up the mosque, local public cleaning up the mosque, that just shows you that I think barriers are being broken right now. The government should be using this and saying, look, if we can end the crisis, look at look at what the people can do. Look at how beautiful this and the way these four months has been soul searching. It's been very to, you know, to the lowest points, but also I feel we've also hit some high points. But it's really about government coming out and saying, all right, let's dialogue. Let's get these very same people that have done all these great things to sit in the table. How can we solve and, 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 and make Hong Kong, you know, recover? And for um, the, the Muslim community itself, what have some of the things you've been hearing in terms of, it doesn't necessarily need to be about the protests, but what have some of the conversations that from this incident you've been hearing and how do you think that we can turn this very this low point into something that builds solidarity, is community building. What, what have you heard and, and what message do you think we should take away um, from how the Muslim community of Hong Kong has expressed their feelings? I think there's, of course, division within the Muslim community, but of course, overall, I think everyone wants to just put this matter to rest. And I think, like me, most of them are happy that, oh, wow, the locals are no longer afraid of the mosque. Or they're no longer shy. They're they're ready to like come in and and understand more. I think just like us, I hope they are also, you know, keeping that momentum going. You know, like I said, Friday we're we're here. We're going to be doing some special things here. I I hope the mosque are going to do more open days, more education on why, you know, how you have to be sensitive. What are are, are the traits? And I think now it's where the government needs to come in and go. Actually. We're not just going to show up when it's a crisis. We're actually going to come in and meet with you guys more often. You know, I don't think Carrie Lam 
has ever been to the mosque before this, if I'm correct. Um, you know, and it's really sad. It always takes a crisis to make people react and move. Um, we've learned lessons this time, and, and we're going to just keep the momentum going. So you've been um, uh, arrested before. You have experience with young Hong Kong uh, men and women who might be part of the criminal justice system, might uh, have experience arrest. I, I'm wondering if you can comment on this. And I, I, this is the last, we're going to veer away from this area to the last few questions after. But when I read about things like, let's say, uh, transformational justice, where you, you figure out, you don't figure out how you can arrest more people, you figure out how you can stop those arrests from occurring in the first place. And you don't figure out the best way to police homelessness. You figure out, well, how do I stop homelessness and the suffering associated with it uh, from happening? So I, I'm just wondering if, if you could speak to some of the tactics going on and maybe just from the perspective of a social worker, why you think they've had the opposite effect of, I think, what the government has intended. And perhaps, who knows what's going to happen in the future, but how would maybe um, a more community organizer, social activist, uh, trans transformational justice approach perhaps be better for the for for trying to solve the the crisis of the Hong Kong protests. I think for ethnic minorities, you know, our crime rates quite high, or the uh, conviction rates are quite high. So a lot of our kids get arrested on, I would say, very very minor crimes where actually it could be preventative measures, or there could have been more. No, not you know, try to prevent. Uh, punitive measures, you know, that's where same things like what the uh, African-Americans go through in America, right? Um, you get arrested and on your first charge, you're already like into that system already, that vicious cycle. And that's what's happening with many of the youth. I've seen that myself. I've seen that now currently with many youths, you know, they go in on a, a crime, which they could have been just given a chance, you know, chance to, to rehabilitate. But instead, they sign a statement that they don't should not have signed. And then they're into that court system. The court system is not that great. You know, uh, there are some biases there. Uh, and, and that's it. You know, I've seen kids just ruin their life. And then that's it. Uh, you know, they get into a life of crime. And we uh, social workers are trying so hard to get these kids to already start thinking about the consequences, start thinking about ways out of that. Um, is it working? I'll say yes, definitely. It's a lot more our kids are going to university more kids are actually now becoming policemen and firemen uh, so there's slow slow you know steady pro progress but is it enough no like i said government's not putting enough resources uh, our kids are still being sucked into this you know justice system where it's you know it's not very favorable to them you know that old um line about it's insane to keep doing the same thing over and over and expect a different result Every month there's been more cops on the street. Every month the violence is getting worse and worse. Um, and the result has been the same. Just for people who don't know, could you talk just a bit about how, what the perspective of a community organizer would be to this, this crisis Hong Kong is, is, is going through and why perhaps the carceral or the punitive uh, justice approach is, is maybe not the best way that this should be handled. 
like I said, it's 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 really sad how many youths have been arrested. Over what nearly close to two thousand youths arrested for, unfortunately, something that the government should be at fault for is their lack of sincere communication. They are off the PR and, and very poor advisors that that have caused this crisis. These are youths that, you know, ten years ago uh, would not be out there in the streets because of of social injustice. So there are some problems underlying that the government has has not gone into the roots of, uh, and we are seeing that today in in the, in, in the face of, of these youths that are willing to risk everything. And I'm, what I'm worried is those two thousand youths who will go into this justice system are going to be, uh, you know, one criminal record and that's it. It follows you the rest of your life, right? And then you just don't progress in life. You just stagnate, and then you know that's a uh, sad reality of it. What we hope is that what I've done as a community organizer is I've hosted dialogues. I've hosted two dialogues myself, you know, uh, with, with the Alba Friends. First one, 45 ethnic minorities sitting down together talking about Hong Kong. And the second one, believe it or not, was attended by a top official from the government. And he had a heart-to-heart. But what was the problem? Chatham House rules. Can't take photos. You can't talk about this meeting. So, you know, Who's going to know? Who's going to know? Actually, the government is trying. They're making genuine efforts. If they, you know, so they have this too, you know, scared approach and just, you know, conservative approach. And well, yeah, we do it our way. That's it. Don't talk to us more. We're not going to give you. And, and that's where the youths today just don't trust government, don't trust institutions. They, you know, and, and youth have power. They're going to be our future leaders. And eventually we're going to pay the cost of our mistakes today. In 20 years is going to be even, I don't know, you know, what, what's going to happen. But a lot of these youths are, are hurt. They're not being listened to. And sadly, they feel like these guys are so disconnected with society. And people like us, we're here, we're in the, in the streets, where we know what's going on. And yet the government doesn't even want to listen to us. Because even though we're giving constructive criticism, nope, they want to have their own group of advisors they think are buddy-buddy with them who always tell them, you know what, you're, you're doing a great job. You're actually doing a great job, government. That's the sad reality of where we are today um, uh, with the establishment. So maybe to pose a question to Hong Kong society, because it, no place is perfect. And certainly Hong Kong has been a place with very high social inequality. It's also been a place that for the lowest uh uh, people who, who are, are among the, the most uh, hard hit by poverty, by mental illness, um, or by social stigmas can be very unforgiving. So I'm wondering, to turn away from the protests, if you could just talk very briefly about um, uh, domestic laborers, migrant laborers, and sex workers. Um, I haven't seen that asked elsewhere. Uh, maybe it's in Chinese language media, but I would love to know some of what the obstacles and structural uh, barriers are for these people becoming part of Hong Kong society? And again, what are some common sense things you think that we could be doing to help these people who are also Hong Kongers? So for domestic migrant workers, I'm going to talk separately uh, of the sex workers. I'm not really uh, an expert on that. I'll just talk about the domestic migrant workers who, for me, are the unsung heroes of Hong Kong, right? They've been here serving our families for for decades while our moms and dads can go out and work and 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 contribute to the economy 
these guys play a crucial role. There's no domestic helpers. I mean, you know what it's like in America to hire a nanny. You know, you, you know the price we pay here is just, it's, it's you know, at, at times I would say it's more than day slavery, right? Uh, they struggle. They are paying, you know, agents. They are having to pay for their families back home. You know, they live in really small rooms. Their rights are infringed. They don't have a full holiday to themselves, to be honest. They have a day off, but it's not a full day off. It's 8 o'clock in the morning, and then they have to come back at 8 p.m. So <laughs> so that's, for me, it's it's close to slavery, modern-day slavery. That's, you know, maybe not as, I can't obviously compare to what's happened um, um, uh, to our African-American uh, folks. You know, and I'm not going to do that. But, you know, it's, it's bad here, and they're treated as not even second-class citizens, third rates. You know, they have no places to just feel at ease. They're in the streets sometimes, as you can see in Central. Um, they're looked down upon. Um, you know, they you know, are treated very horribly. They're called names. Uh, and it's quite sad because, you know, on a daily basis, you leave your children, you leave your homes to them, and they take care of them. And, you know... And yet they still face abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental and emotional abuse. So it's, you know, they're unsung heroes, to be honest. And I think even during these protests, you know, I, I, again, I, I'm not blaming the movement. It's been so hard because it moves from one district to another. And on a Sunday, the once rest day, they also now, these four months have to be stressed out, have to be, you know, always on the lookout. But again, remember, most news in Hong Kong is in Cantonese. There's a lot of fake news. There's a lot of, you know, news that they, they may not be able to understand. And, and, and so they're all stuck in the middle of this. And, um, you know, no one's actually talked about how they feel or how refugees feel because they're not even supposed to exist, apparently. So, yeah. So how can we fix that in, in some ways that are small? Or how can, if we're just talking about each other as as Hong Kongers, what are some of the suggestions you've had for how Hong Kong can care more about Hong Kong? How can Hong Kongers better support each other if they listen to us chat and they're interested in helping some of these people? Well, we raise awareness. We have dialogues. We have discussions. We have meetups. You know, you, know, you read, read articles. You, 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 you genuinely do some research. You know, or you go and meet with one of them and find out. You know, that's not something we do in Hong Kong is talk to people and, and sit and understand and just live in our life, you know, fast forwarding. Uh, and I think that is something that we need to do more is engage with each other and, and have more mutual support and, and concern as a, as a society. Um, because, you know, now we're out there together because our rights are being infringed, but no one was out there for them when their rights were infringed. And I think that Sadly, the city, the way we are, is so, you know, just self-absorbed. Well, it sounds like we're, this will then have to be the first of many conversations. Um, I guess uh, to end on an upbeat note, because all your media, you're, you look very fun to be around. And I want, I want to end our conversation on, on that same note. Also, I like... Um, I understand that it's you, you shouldn't put lipstick on a pig, as my, I don't know, one of my relatives might say. And so it's important to talk about the good and the bad, and I really appreciate you being open. But I wanted to ask, because I know you're, you do a lot of work with youth, um, 
I'm wondering if you've heard anything recently from a young person that really made you smile, really made you think, or really made you question something you were doing. Have you heard anything just recently that, that comes to mind from some of the young people that you mentor that has really been a deep or moving or joyous insight for you? You know, like I said, I'm really proud of the youth these days. They're really thinking about social justice, you know, and, and inequality, trying to break that. And I think these days it's no longer about, hey, I want to be a banker because I want to be rich and buy that car. It's no, I want to do something that society can benefit. And I'm really proud these days. A lot of youth have been, you know, calling me up. You know, um, one of them personally said, yes, you're, you know, I know what you put up on Facebook, your color, um, but actually your color is giving me strength, you know, and I'm like, you know, that's that's brilliant. It means people are, are also feeling a certain pride when I get uh, accolades. They're also feeling that this is also part of their success. And, you know, that's awesome because I believe they will make that next change as well. Now they see, oh, there's a Jeff, there's a KK, there's a people. Um, we can do it too, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually really, really encouraged. I'm, I'm motivated, and I think I'm, I'm quite certain, you know, maybe in the next five years, we wouldn't have to have this conversation about race and what it's like for, you know, our identity. I think you'll see a, a, a different group of Hong Kongers um, with a different kind of struggle, but no longer about race and ethnicity and and and, and, and you know, cultural differences. 